y'all. It's Betsy Orton with the Dickey Foundation, and you're listening to Dickey's Doing Good, the podcast where we tell good stories about good people doing good things in the community. I'm thrilled because my guest today is Dallas Police Department Sergeant Josh Hertel. Josh has been a police officer with DPD for more than 20 years, and he is currently at the Love Field Unit where he supervises the explosive detection canines. He's also a board member for the Assist the Officer Foundation and the Dallas Police Association and helps with their Bridging the Divide podcast. Thanks so much for joining me today, Josh. Thank you for having me. Wonderful. So for those folks who don't know you quite as well as I do, tell us about yourself, your law enforcement career, and how you came to be where you are today. Uh, I guess I'll just start with my law enforcement career. I've spent uh, just a little over 20 years with the Dallas Police Department. Started here when I was 25 years old. Uh, Started my career at Southeast Patrol Division. Stayed there for about five and a half years. Uh, Moved on to SWAT at a very uh, young age of 30 Um, as a new senior corporal. uh, Was there for roughly six years promoted to sergeant left spent time down at cbd moved over to our metro unit uniformed and uh plain clothes and then went back to swat as a supervisor um shortly after that uh was there for probably a little under two years uh left went to the love field unit where i worked deep nights for i don't know a year or two and then moved over to our explosive detection canine squad so where, where i am now so tell me a little bit more about that Love Field unit. I mean, it's one of those things, obviously, that's one of our airports here in, in, in Dallas. Uh, but, you know, it's kind of like you all are good at your job, so we never hear about things, uh, you know, going wrong. So so tell me a little bit more kind of about y'all's work there, particularly with the explosive canines uh, or the explosive detection canines, not actually exploding dogs. In <laughs> generals, the uh, Love Field unit used to be a hideaway for individuals who uh, were not doing so well with the police department. Um, I think there was quite a bit of change many years before I came along that uh, changed that. Uh, but there is a actual Dallas Police Department uh, unit that is assigned out there to Love Field. Uh, we, it consists of line officers who go out and there's certain areas per agreement with TSA, Department of Aviation. We have MOUs that kind of state the areas that we're kind of responsible for. We're responsible obviously for the security of the infrastructure, that being critical on on its own in nature since 9-11 should be pretty obvious to people why you'd want a law enforcement agency at a airport of course especially one right in the middle of dallas um but uh those guys and gals are all responsible for uh, any criminal activity that takes place out there and that and also just the main security of that structure uh and within that is the explosive detection canine squad those are canines that are specifically trained uh they're a actual uh, it's an agreement that we have with TSA. Uh, they do that for a lot of police agencies throughout the nation. Uh, they provide dog training and a certain amount of reimbursement. And with that, we just agree to follow their guidelines and the dogs are at our disposal and use. So the dogs use their, their use is there at the airport. That's their TOS, the area that they're responsible for. They recognize Dow, DAL being the, uh, alpha notifier for the airport love field and uh so they're responsible for the airport uh they do anything from suspicious packages vehicles anything that's kind of out of the ordinary out of place we sweep that they're constantly in and out of the secure area non-secure areas of the airport and the perimeters the fbos uh they do a lot of sweeps for southwest cargo um yeah, they do a lot with that, but at the same time, they also work in conjunction with our explosive ordnance squad. So they do a lot of work with them. Uh, and that's for events, uh, 
any large scale, small scale event that requires uh, the explosive ordnance squad, we would work hand in hand with them. They're responsible for callback. So they'd go on callback for any type of bomb threat that we can provide any type of assistance on or any calls from patrol, not only our city, but surrounding agencies as well. So they're pretty much responsible for a large piece of the Dallas area and that surrounding community centralized right there at the airport. So that's really interesting. And the, these dogs are specifically trained to detect explosive material. Correct. Odor. Right. Okay. So they're, they're, they're not the drug dogs. They're, they're the, no. they're the bomb dogs. <laughs> yeah. And it's, that's, that's the common thing when they walk through the airport. That's what people, I think most people think they see. We do have narcotics animals that are out there that, uh, they are, are interdiction animals. Um, they are in and out of that area quite a bit, but, uh, yeah, we always get kind of, people get kind of edgy and nervous whenever you get around them, they think you're, you know, you're either violating their rights or they're happy to see you. They're not, or they're really, they just, just make the assumptive notion that, Hey, these dogs are here to find narcotics. I don't have narcotics in my bag. So why is this dog around me? Well, really that dog's not looking for narcotics. If the dog has any interest in you or has any type of a finalization at you, then, then there's a larger problem than, 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 than they know. Yeah. That's a much bigger problem than having, yeah. having a joint yeah. <laughs> or something like Marijuana that. Marijuana and explosives are two different things. Uh, ab- <laughs> clearly, clearly. And so, I mean, it, do you, do you find that as you all are walking through the walking? I mean, let's talk about like the main terminal rather than like Southwest cargo. If we're walking to the main terminal, are you all finding things that are getting through TSA? No, 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 no. And actually, uh, what we find is residual of training. Uh, as a matter of fact, our dogs just had an eval not too long ago and, uh, actually both finalized on an aircraft, uh, that was, uh, utilized previously. There's a way to track this. It's tracked for a reason so that we don't have any finalization of animals on aircrafts and it creates a whole hoopla of having a bomb squad and everybody else come out and evac of aircraft. But most of the time it's, uh, where training had taken place prior. Right. So we've had it one time in our, uh, I think our baggage area since I've been here where TSA had been out there separately training. One of our dogs walked past that area finalized right there, come to find out a little bit more research and investigation. They had trained out there previously. Of course we have better contact with them. Now we've created a few little, uh, uh, safety nets, I guess you could say that where we kind of have a little bit more knowledge of when people are training for our own good and for the public's good. So, but other than that, no, we don't have any issues. Well, have not. And and not not to scare the public by any means, but I mean, the fact that we, we have an explosive detection unit within DPD with the canines, I mean, are you all finding things? I mean, uh, I mean with, with what, no. what kind of regularity the, in, is that out there? In the time there? that I've been there, and I've been there, I believe, since uh, the summer of uh, 2019 is, I think, when I came over. And uh, yeah, we, we haven't had any finalization for a dog. And the finalization would mean the dog has given you the final notion has, has given his intent, his or her intent that um, he, they're 100% certain that there is explosive order, odor that they have found uh, without getting into the technicalities of all of it to give up a lot of those, uh, not trade secrets, just a lot of the right. things the public does not need to know. Um, but a finalization would be the animal is confident that this is explosive odor that it's come in contact with. The handler will recognize the change, the either initial finalization or the change and they can call that as well. So we have not had that. Of course, we train regularly. There's training going on all the time and unbeknownst to the public, it, it, it happens beneath your nose and it's fine that it needs to because the dogs need to also be able to interact in large environments. Uh, there's more dynamic to it than most people think. They walk a dog on a leash and the dog does what it needs to do, but there's, there's a dynamic between the handler and the animal. And then there's also that dynamic of around, right? A dog, it's 
best described to me when I first started. The dog, when, when we go into like, a, when we go into a pizza place, you smell pizza, mm -hmm. but the dog smells the cheese, the sauce, the pepperoni, the sausage, the dough, all the, in, all the ingredients this dog has been trained uh, to, to uh, smell, to detect the odor. And so there's a whole lot more to it, you know, than just that. So there's a dynamic between the animal and the handler where the handler needs to learn the animal's dynamics, its thresholds, where when, when it's in odor, when it's not in odor, when it comes out of odor, this, that, and the other. So I actually have a bird dog that I picked up uh, very similar to our animals out there and, uh, and have been able to use some of these guys and gals to better treat my animal in the field as far as recognizing and to train him because this is the first time I ever trained a bird dog. So I used a lot of stuff that they had taught me and the stuff I've observed them do to kind of utilize that in the field when you're placing birds and whatnot. And it's just, it's, it's incredible when you start getting into it, see just all the intricacies that are involved in it. And it's just not as simple as just, Hey, I picked this dog up, got him from the government. I'm going to walk him down the hallway and this dog's going to do whatever it needs to do. No, like it, it doesn't work. It doesn't no, work like that. And, no, the, and the way you all handle and, and treat your dogs is very different than uh, I've got, I've got a little dog. He's 18 years old. So we're just, we're yeah. just happy when he wakes up on this side. But I mean, what, what you all are doing is very different than what kind of, as you said, the public does with their dog taking a long right. walk. And it's not to confuse anybody. I don't have an animal at work. Uh, I give these handlers all the credit. They do a very good job. Uh, they work very hard for what they have, and so I, I'm just there to support them uh, administratively and professionally, and sometimes personally. And uh, that's that's my sole purpose, my sole job, and make sure they get the the training they need afforded to them. Make sure that we're staying up to speed on everything. Make sure that I've organized the uh, the sweeps that we do. Uh, it all comes through me most of the time, and uh, that's that's pretty much my whole purpose and job. So. Not to confuse anybody, I'm, <laughs> but, I'm, I'm, I am not a dog guru, but these people are. So. <laughs> well, but I mean, what, what a cool unit, you know, to, to work with. And it you, is. You probably have some dog treats on your desk, maybe. No, no dog treats there. No dog no. treats at your desk. Okay, I've got dog treats at my desk, but uh, that's different. Yeah. So so let's switch gears a little bit. You you mentioned that you joined the SWAT team as one of, probably one of the youngest members to, to join Dallas SWAT because you were just 30 years old. Yeah. Um, well, I wasn't the youngest. There's several other that have come before me, and there's a few that, that were there when I was there that came in the same time as me younger. I just, uh, at my point in time in the career, I was very young in my career at five and a half, six years in my career. I just happened to be 30 years old, so I was still able to take a beating. So <laughs> my body was. Well, I mean, and SWAT, SWAT officers definitely take a beating. I, I've That's heard me. on the ATO podcast, y'all have had a number of SWAT officers on there and talking mm -hmm. about that. Um, you know, tell, tell me about your time there with SWAT, getting into it, and then quite frankly, when you decided to step into a different role. Yeah, so uh, with any other member of SWAT that comes through there, you go through your, your tryouts, and we've changed a lot over the years to kind of vet the individuals that come through. Uh, to make the uh, hiring or the, uh, uh, I guess you could call it a hiring process, but it's not hiring. But um, when you apply, so the application process is a little bit more challenging, right? So we have a basic SWAT school that people go through. But eventually, as a person in SWAT, you will go through a basic SWAT school. Uh, you'll be lined up with a bunch of different uh, sets of skill uh, schools that you'll go to. That kind of, when I came in, they kind of dropped you into category you were either going to be a sniper um, you know everyone was considered a breacher at the time because it was all mechanical breaching you learned how to slam and learned how to pry you had to use those things and of course actually Dallas was very uh, 
uh, you know, they were an innovator and a leader in the nation with uh, breaching in general, is utilizing the APCs for pulls, pulling out windows, bars, all that. So uh, everybody had to fill that role at some point in time, right? Whether it be break and break on a window, uh, you had this little galley of things you did as a new individual. You know, you're on probation for the first six months and they kind of put you in these They'll put you in different crafts and fields. And most of the time it was either you were going to go be a negotiator, you're going to be a sniper, or you're going to be a less lethal gas. So when I went over there, I've hunted my most of my uh, years from 12 on. Uh, so I've always had a very big interest in firearms and rifles. That was just a part of me. Um, so I was very interested in doing the sniper part. So that's where I got put. Originally, that's where I was placed. Um, so my career over there for the first couple of years was as my, my main primary piece was a sniper. So my support role was always being a sniper. Everybody is an entry member, uh, where you are going into the house or the structure is based on your skill set, your seniority, uh, your ability to react. You know, obviously we have a lot of training that builds you up to that point. So. Um, spent many years just doing that, you know, and a lot of that as a new guy, you, you do all the dirty work, you go get the vans ready for warrants, you, you clean them, you gas them up, you get everything prepped, you help set up the, the poles outside. Of course, the individuals doing the poles are the ones that are going to be the ones that set it up directly. You just help out. So you're very much an assistant role, including all that for what you do on a warrant. Well, know? nobody wants to, you know, hop in the SWAT van to go do it and be like, oh, wait, we got to run by the gas station and fill yeah. it up. <laughs> yeah, you got to have all that stuff prepped. Otherwise, you, you, you target yourself or you you depict yourself as an individual that's either trustworthy or not very quickly. So, um, but yeah, so as the years progressed, um, I had no clue. I went to a, a training they had at the old reunion building and uh, they were doing explosive breaching down there. And uh, I had a, a squad leader, uh, assistant squad leader, Tim Houston, uh, it kind of introduced me to some of the explosives. Uh, it, man, I was just hooked. I was like, what is this? I was like, you, you, you guys get to play with this stuff at rope. I'm like, what's that rope? Well, that's deck cord. That's explosive. And they're like, holy cow. And so I went and watched this training. And from that point forward, I was like, man, I, this, this is it. This is great. You know, you can, you can actually devise these things and be creative and, and, uh, and, and, and then you get to blow stuff up. Yeah. I mean, it's incredible. in a controlled environment. Yeah. I was like, man, this is incredible. So you watch all these guys and gals, uh, cause Misty was over there. So I say gals and, uh, and you watch them do this and you're just like, man, that's awesome. So that kind of changed my trajectory. I kind of asked if I could go ahead and start leaning more towards that. And that sniper rifle soon kind of got tossed off to somebody else that had more, more interest in it. And, uh, and not to say I didn't, uh, and God bless those guys. And especially the ones that are still doing it today. It's just, there's a lot of work that goes into a sniper rifle, but the, uh, the explosive piece is the one that really caught my eye. So I really focused all my time and attention into that. I went through as much training as, as I could, whether it be ours through, through the TTPOA or through a national school like T's or wherever we had. And the evolution of this has just gone from, from very simplistic, you know, we're going to put a shield up to protect us from overpressure and, and frag to now there's a science and, uh, you know, and a lot of it's learned off the military, right? The military was uh, really utilizing a lot of this overseas in the beginning of the uh, of our uh, wars after 2001. And I really got to see a lot of it come back with some guys from uh, 
the from the Delta groups, they came in, I think it was like probably 2008, they came in here for some training as they do their roundabouts throughout the nation before before they de- deploy. We had the old old Mrs. Baird's plant down here, mm-hmm. NAS, we had a bunch of different places where they trained, including downtown, which was comical because these guys show up in these vehicles in plain clothes and they, they walk in there and they've got a whole training scenario set up and all you hear is the, the thunder and the roar of all the stuff up the building and they walk back out into Elm Street downtown and just kind of get in their vehicles and they disappear, right? And, and <laughs> no one knows the difference yeah. when you're there or when they're not, including over here at Mrs. Barrett's plant. No one knew any different, but uh, they, 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 they let us watch them, you know, and I think that's another part of where, you know, my idea and uh, mindset of that craft kind of took off too, was kind of seeing that. So a lot of that stuff is learned from the military. There's a lot of science, a lot of doctors, a lot of people returning with TBIs, a lot of problems from all that breaching. And uh, so that kind of evolved a, a lot of it. Um, as a matter of fact, most of these conferences we go to, if you go to the National Breaching Symposium, they'll always have doctors and they come back with the latest and greatest uh, information regarding TBIs, regarding overpressure, uh, fragmentation. And, and of course, there's now there's commercial type products from different set groups that that will innovate breaching products where you just insert explosives and it's there to minimize. They take the guesswork out of it. Most of them will come if there's some type of a problem that takes place as far as a liability issue, they can come to court and testify for you as long as you utilize the product the way it was intended to be utilized. But point being is it went from the era of like uh, IV bags and and deck cord and sheet explosive to now we're getting into actual full-blown products that are because the goal is never P for plenty. The goal is to minimize the amount of explosive used Mm -hmm. so that you can stay closer to this target to minimize any dangers to the public, but to minimize any dangers to those entry teams. And of course, on this side of the target, back out, and then also inside, whether it be a hostage rescue, if there's somebody in there, of course, you don't ever want to cause undue harm to a suspect just quite yet. And and so you always have to think about, you know, their well-being as well. So but and the target structure has increased twofold uh not to get into a lot of specifics on that but these uh these dope traps and a lot of these other houses and they they people are very innovative with how they barricade their homes you know whether it be the uh, steel bar doors out front those are those are not obsolete i wouldn't say but they're very simply defeated and then uh but so to some of these barricades that people put up you know the whole point is your whole purpose is to be able to get on target, whether it be personally or utilizing a robot or some type of a, a long device or the APC to push something up on it and then getting off of it, right? So you kind of minimize your time on target. That was the whole point of the, the original piece of it was, hey, this is going to utilize one hit with this as opposed to maybe three or four hits with the slammer. So we minimize the time our entry team is exposed at that doorway, that threshold, which is their most, most vulnerable point. So... Um, so yeah, so it's, I was very fortunate and very blessed to be given that opportunity to do that. And I, and I, and I took that very serious and that was, that was my craft and, and I love doing it and I'm not going to pat myself on the back, but I was no slouch when it came to it, you know? So, uh, I, I, I had a great time doing that. And then of course, doing the entry work, I really enjoyed that. Um, you know, I, not only did I do the explosives, I was a ballistic breacher as well. So you know, I shotgun rounds to breach doorways bar cages, stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I really, I really enjoyed my time over there and that was how I kind of evolved. I evolved up to a certain point and, uh, reached a point in my career at the time I was married, just had 
uh, get ready to have my first child. Uh, our pension used to be fantastic, used to be awesome, used to be sought after. And a way to increase that pension, uh, I thought about my family at that time, which was, hey, in order to increase income and you know to do better for my pension, I need to promote. So there were things that I saw where I could maybe be better utilized and make a difference as a sergeant as opposed to a senior corporal. So one of my main goals was always to go back to SWAT and be there as a team leader and kind of help evolve whatever needed to be evolved from that point. So anyway, so I, I took the test, I promoted in 2012, but uh, very few people are able to stay where they once were, which is good because I, I wouldn't want to supervise my own peers as a new supervisor anyway. It's hard enough going back there with just a few years under my belt, you know? Uh, and uh, so I, I did that and I moved on, went on to CBD and then went into Metro and then got a chance to go back over to SWAT, so. Well, it's clear that it's clear that you loved getting to work with the explosives. I mean, it, it, it's blowing stuff off in a kind of a safer, safe-ish environment. Sounds kind of a, is there some, is, is there one that you can think about that's like, man, that was the coolest, you know, the coolest incident getting to work and getting, getting to, to be involved in that. I think the coolest thing for me and still is to this day, as I see these guys is my involvement with my teammates. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is nothing that will, even the worst days over there, I think back and I, I just have such a good time. I go see my old squad. Like I just saw them at the range the other day and it's just, it's just so fun to see people. And then you see the new people that are there and it's just a different dynamic around a smaller group of individuals like that. And, uh, not that I don't have that now, but, uh, yeah, it was just, uh, I spent a lot of time with those, with those guys and gals. And, uh, and so it's, that's the best part that mm-hmm. I remember, you know, regardless of what I got to do, I got to do a lot of training that people, in this world will never get to do right and and i'm very fortunate of that and uh my involvement with that piece but the one thing that i can never that can never be taken away is is the memories i have of just being around the folks over there and and the times we had because when it sucked it sucked and everybody ate it and when it was fun it was fun and everybody enjoyed it but there was always just a camaraderie that that was really fun then so well and i have the privilege to talk to a lot of dpd officers and i will tell you it is a family and hearing about the brotherhood and the sisterhood and um that it really is about the people i mean i think a lot of people think about their jobs and it's like well they like it or they don't like it but the people i mean the people Mm -hmm. really do do make a difference there Thanks so much for tuning into the first part of my interview with Josh Rattel with the Dallas Police Department. Please tune in next week for part two of our interview and hear about his incredible experiences on July 7th, 2016. If you want more information about the Dickey Foundation, feel free to visit thedickeyfoundation.org. And if you want more information about some of our great owners and the great stories they're doing, please visit dickeys.com. We look forward to seeing you next week where we'll continue sharing the good stories of good people doing good things in our community.